The following audio is from a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer entitled, Pray Like Jesus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we are continuing our study this morning on the Lord's Prayer. We've entitled the series, Pray Like Jesus, because Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And today we are specifically looking at the third and fourth, uh, or actually second and third petitions found in Matthew 6, verses, verse 10. So if you open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew 6, verse 10. Now the encouraging thing is so far, we have been hearing a lot of positive feedback from you on this series. Uh, we're grateful to God that you are finding it helpful. Um, and if you have any more questions, or you would like us to address anything. So we have a Sacred City Life podcast, and we're going to be uh, filming another episode this week, or recording another episode this week on prayer again. So if you have any questions that this sermon st uh, stirs up in you, or the past sermons have stirred up on you in, in you about regarding prayer, email us, message us, and we'll try to address them in the podcast this week. So let me pray, and we're going to jump in. Father God, we, uh, we come to you this morning, and we ask for you to speak to us, that you speak to us, through your word, the Bible, and you speak to us through your spirit. And so we want to submit ourselves to you and ask for you to speak into our lives. Father, I am not that wise. I'm not that smart um, to stand up before this many people and uh, act like I've got it all together or act like I know something. Um, so I pray that they wouldn't hear me, they would hear you. I pray that you would speak through me that your word on these pages would come alive, that you would spark something in us, um, that you'd be glorified, and that we would come to know you in a greater way. Pray that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, Father, that it would be you this morning and not me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Go ahead and raise your hand. Well, you, yeah. All right, if you've been around here, you've done it because we've done it on the screen before, right? All right, uh, how many of you have the Lord's Prayer memorized or at one time in your life you've had the Lord's Prayer memorized? <coughs> nice. That's a good thing. When Jesus tells us to pray like this, he wants them to have it memorized. He wants them to be so familiar with this prayer that it shapes how they communicate and encounter God together for the rest of their life. Now, this is something, that's something, it's not just meant to be a private prayer. We pray alone. That's why he says, our father, right? And he says later on, give us these things. We met, we're meant to pray like this corporately as well. But though it's good that we're familiar with it, it's good many of us have it memorized. There's also a danger in familiarity. We can become so used to something that we begin to take it for granted. And it loses all of its power and effect in our life. 
Now, this is one of the reasons why I love living in Iowa so much. See, I, I was born and raised here. I am comfortable here. When I travel and I say where I'm from, people always say, oh, Iowa. A lot of corn in Iowa, huh? And I'm like, yeah, we got a lot of corn. But honestly, I barely even notice corn anymore. Right? I don't notice cornfields. I don't stare at them in majestic wonder. I just drive past them to wherever I'm going. And if you're going to like ignore something of creation, I feel cornfields is the best thing to ignore. But when I travel, when I travel, mountains, oceans, big cities, I just sit at them and stare for hours. I wake up early, I get my coffee, whoa, whatever it is, I could stare at it for hours. See, living in Iowa makes me appreciate these other places so much more. And I have friends and family that, that live in the mountains, and I have friends and family that live by the ocean. And one of the most depressing things is when I ask them, oh yeah, when was the last time you, you, you went up the mountain? Or when was the last time you went in the ocean? Most of them say, I can't remember. Last time you were here, actually. See, I believe the same is true for many of us when we pray the Lord's Prayer. For many of us, we've become so familiar with the Lord's Prayer that its glory has been lost on us. We've driven past that mountain every day for the past 20 years, and we know it's there, but we haven't stopped and gazed at it in a long time. We haven't hiked it. We haven't been on its summit. We haven't experienced its glory. Many of us know the words of this prayer. We know what it says, but we haven't really thought about it very much. And if we're honest, we would say that it's lost its power and its effect in our lives. Its glory has been diminished and it's become a kind of tame, nice, church lady way to speak to God. Oh, it's so nice. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But when Jesus taught his disciples to pray like this, it was anything but tame. In fact, as we'll see today, this was the prayer of a revolutionary. Your kingdom come was a prayer that was meant to topple governments, and it did. It eventually overthrew Rome itself. It was meant to overthrow kingdoms. This was a prayer that was meant to subvert all of the power systems of the world that put the good-looking, the smart, the talented, the best, the rich, the powerful on top and subjugate everyone else. This was a prayer that was meant to return the cosmos back to its rightful place. And so it's my prayer for us that this prayer would get some of its glory back. That we would settle in over the next few weeks and stop and stare at it and take it in and chew on it and meditate and see what it has for us. We'd marvel at it once again. And then as we come to see it in a new and fresh way, we would actually use it in our daily lives. We would pray it. In the morning, we pray it at night. We pray it in our families at the dinner table. We pray it in our missional communities that we would let this prayer stir our heart for what God has for us, for our church, and for our cities. In fact, that's what it means to pray, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is meant to remind us that we have been invited into a story that is much bigger than any one of us. That all of us, because of the effect of Adam and Eve's sin, that's been passed down to us. It's called original sin. We're born sinners, so every human being. This is what happens. We all have a little thing in our hearts that resets daily, maybe hourly, maybe minute by minute. And what's this reset do? It resets us to become the center of our own stories. But this prayer is meant to wake us up to another option. See, you can choose to live your life as the center of your own little story, and you can spend your whole life trying to get everyone in your life to become characters in your story where you get to be the hero or the heroine. But that story is so minuscule. It's so small compared to the eternal epic story of God that's been he's been telling from the beginning and he'll tell on into eternity. Here in the Lord's Prayer, God is offering us the option to be a character in the story that he's telling. Now, we obviously only get to play a small part, a tiny extra with about a second of screen time, but it's still a part in the greatest story ever told. And it's the story of God and his kingdom. Now, do you know what the kingdom of God is? We're Americans. We don't know much about kingdoms unless you study history, right? Uh, one of the cries of our country and its founding fathers was, we serve no sovereign here, right? A rejection of the king's authority here in America. And we all, it's kind of unique, but we have this kind of unction in our guts. We don't need a king here. We like democracy. So most of us, when we hear this, your kingdom come, what, do, what does that even mean? Well, most theologians believe that the kingdom of God is the unifying theme throughout all of scripture, both old and new. But unfortunately, many modern Christians we don't understand anything about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we don't really know what that means. And obviously, if you don't know what something means, then you're not going to be that excited to pray it, right? You're not going to be excited for it to happen. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, it's helpful to break down that word kingdom a bit. What is a kingdom? And basically, you have three necessary aspects for a kingdom, right? One, you have a king who rules. Two, you have a people who are ruled or submit to his authority. Three, you have a sphere, a place where this rule is recognized, right? So you have a king, you have a people who submit to his rule, and you have a place to be ruled, now, in this prayer of Jesus, you can already get this sense of those three aspects. He says for us to pray, your kingdom come. Well, we already know who are we praying to. He's taught us our Father in heaven, right? So we're praying to God, and we're saying, God, your kingdom come. So who's the king? God. God is the king. We're told to pray, your kingdom 
come. That means God brings it. God ushers it in. We don't make it happen. We don't bring it. God's kingdom comes and we're told to pray for his kingdom to come and for the king's will to be done on earth as it is, as it is in heaven. Now, this is the problem. In that statement, we see God's sphere where his rule is recognized. But it alerts us to the glaring problem. Jesus says, pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. He says for us to pray that God's rule would be recognized on earth as it is in heaven. What that tells us is that God's kingdom right now is actually in heaven. That's where everyone loves and submits to God's good governance. They submit to the king in heaven. They only do what God wants. And that's why heaven is an amazing place where everyone is happy all the time. But this should draw our attention to something. Something has happened on earth where it has gotten off course and has rebelled from God's kingship. So on this earth, God's kingship is not being recognized. His rule is not being followed. And so, so therefore, his kingdom is not on this earth. His kingdom is in heaven. Scholar Graham Goldsworthy says it like this. The kingdom of God, as the Bible defines it, is the sphere of God's rule in which his creatures submit, look, willingly to this righteous rule. So God is not a king that's, going, that's coming to this earth or he's just going to bend us and just break us and just mold us and just conquer us. His kingdom comes where people submit willingly to his rule. And so this is happening in heaven. Everyone in heaven does everything God wants, submits, loves, enjoys God forever. But there's something that's happened on this earth where that's not taking place. Now, I don't have time this morning to give this a full treatment. I might teach on this in Porterbrook this year. But the theme of the kingdom of God is the main theme of the gospel and all of scripture itself. And I'm going to hit the high points really briefly. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, right? God creates. God speaks and creates everything out of nothing. And in the garden, we see the three aspects of a kingdom. God is the king. Adam and Eve are his subjects. And Eden is the realm of his kingdom. God gives one rule. Here's the rule. Enjoy everything you see except for that one tree. And as human beings submit to God's rule and obey him, they get to enjoy his goodness and his benevolence. But then in the midst of this kingdom, Adam and Eve rebel from God's rule and commit cosmic treason against the king. They, they had one rule, can't we all just say that was a pretty decent deal, right? Enjoy all of creation, eat all you want, 
enjoy God himself, walk with him, talk with him, enjoy each other. The Bible says they were naked and not afraid, right? All you, the only thing don't, there's one tree. Just don't eat of that one tree. That's a pretty good deal. That's a kind, loving, and good king. And that sounds like easy street to me, right? I'm going to kick Adam in the shins when I see him in heaven, right? (laughs) But then, in a scene that seems so familiar to me, it's like a day in the life of Justin Dean. Adam rebels against the righteous rule of God. This thought comes to his mind and he doesn't stop it. He doesn't repent. He doesn't talk to his wife about it, right? He, he doesn't go to God with it. This thought comes into his mind. What if my life becomes about me? What if, my, what if I try to accomplish my will and my wishes? What if this becomes my story? What if I become the captain of my own fate rather than have my little life revolve around God? What if I put myself at the center? See, in the garden, this was a clashing of wills. And Adam and Eve chose to put themselves at the center. And in that moment, what they were doing was rebelling from the king. And they were like, I'm going to be king of my own kingdom, king and queen of my own kingdom. And it did not go well for them. That's the moment in time, in history, where the sin of mankind destroyed the kingdom of God on this earth. See, Eden no longer was the kingdom of God because now the subjects were not willingly submitting to the king's rule. This is a kingdom in turmoil, a kingdom in rebellion. This was a coup that happened in heaven. So now the kingdom of God is no longer in Eden. It's no longer on this earth. But here's what's shocking. The rest of the Bible, and it's a big book, and most Christians don't understand this, the rest of the Bible becomes the story of God restoring people in such a way that they can once again become his willing subjects in a kingdom, here it is, on this earth. Let me play this out for you really quick. Mankind, it just, it gets progressively bad after Adam and Eve do this. Their own sons, one son kills another, murder happens, all kind of, Terrible things start happening. God looks down and says, the, the, the heart of man is wicked. It's set on evil to do evil all the time. God wipes out humanity with the flood, saves one family. That's Noah, because Noah was blameless in God's sight and found favor and found grace. And then God, they multiply, and then people start doing the same crazy stuff all over again. Set on evil, set on wickedness, will not submit to the rule of God. The kingdom of God is not on this earth, and God does something crazy. God looks down at this moon worshiper named Abram and he says, I'm going to promise you, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a kingdom. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I promise that from you will come a nation, will come a people, will come a kingdom. God promises to do this thing. 
And he does it. Then God's people are, years later, God's people are wound up in slavery. They're in Egypt. And then God says, I'm going to raise up another man. This man's going to deliver you out. Now listen, Abraham was promised a people. Abraham was promised a place, the promised land. And he, would, he was promised that, that, he would, that God would walk with him and teach him all of his ways. And we see God do all those things. God delivers them out of the exodus into the promised land. He gives them a place. God gives them a rule. He gives them the Ten Commandments. This is how you follow me. This is how you walk in my ways. And God promises to bless them. All right? So the kingdom is promised way back to Abraham. Then the kingdom gets kind of foreshadowed. You go into this... David sets up the David sets up this king kingdom right. He's got Jerusalem. We've got this place, and we've got this temple. We've got this promise that God is going to be here with us. And now the people have an actual king for their first time. But what happens in this Davidic kingdom? All the kings blow it. All the kings are sinful. All the people rebel, push away from God. And so in the Old Testament, with all the the kings in the line of David, you have this promise, a kingdom is still coming. It's kind of here, but it's not really here. It's a foreshadowing of this kingdom that's to come. And then the prophets come along and the prophets say, yeah, 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 those kings blew it. The kingdom is still on its way. But then in the gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up on the scene. And this is how the Apostle Mark says it. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, that's the good news, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, Jesus comes He steps into a story, a story that's already being told from the Old Testament, this longing for the kingdom, this longing for people to be restored under a right rule of God. And Jesus comes and he says, it's here. The kingdom is at hand. And Jesus begins to show humanity what life looks like inside God's kingdom. First off, He, even though he's God in the flesh, he's the eternal son of God, he submits himself willingly and joyfully to the Father's rule. Over and over, Jesus says, I do nothing that hasn't already been approved by the Father. I'm not coming to do my own will. I'm not coming to find my own life. I'm not coming to to make my best life now. I'm coming to fulfill the Father's wishes. He's saying, I don't have my own agenda I'm here fulfilling the Father's purposes. Second, everywhere Jesus goes, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. He's telling people, God is finishing what he started. God is bringing his kingdom now. God is going to fix this earth. God is going to flip the kingdoms of this world upside down, and he's beginning it right here and now. Jesus was a gospel preacher. He preached good news. It said things can be made right. And third, Jesus doesn't just preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now listen, this means Jesus didn't come saying, here's how you get to heaven. Believe this and you'll go to heaven. One day your spirit will float up to the great by and by. And so all this world means nothing. That's not what Jesus preached. 
Jesus did not preach that this world was somehow of lesser glory than heaven, that this was somehow meaningless and it was just hold your nose and just down goes the medicine until you get to heaven. No, no, no. He came bringing the kingdom here. What does that look like? Jesus shows people what life inside of this kingdom will look like. In God's kingdom, people can be forgiven. In the kingdom of God, the sick are made well. In God's kingdom, that song we sang, that last song was amazing today. Joel didn't have my notes, but it's like he did when he put that song in the thing. Listen, in the kingdom of God, the outsider is brought in and given a home. In God's kingdom, the unlikely can be made disciples and leaders, tax collectors, prostitutes, notorious sinners. In God's kingdom, selfish people are liberated from their self-centeredness and freed to bless others. We had, the tax collectors were some of those selfish people. They were very greedy. They, they profited off of their own people and they, they, their goal was to get as much, much taxes in as possible and they could take a cut of it. So they were working on commission. The more taxes they could levy against others, the more money they could make on their own. And what happens when these tax collectors come to faith? Some of them say, I'm going to give half of my wealth back to the church, back to your kingdom, Jesus. We see Jesus liberate these people from their own self-centeredness. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, the dead can be raised to new life. Jesus raised the dead. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. But when Jesus comes something kind of shocking happens. All the people were like, all of his disciples were like, yes, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus just is like, wrong question. You don't know the day. You don't know the hour. You don't know what you're talking about. Why? Because Jesus is about to do something bigger than the nation of Israel. Jesus lives this life as the perfect son, submits to the kingdom, kingship of God his whole life, and then, in a surprising reversal, somehow in the divine providence of God, takes on the sin of mankind and goes to the cross and isn't exalted as a king, goes to the cross and dies as a criminal. And so all of his disciples were like, oops, no king gets crucified and his kingdom remains. This thing all was a mistake. But then there was this little, first off, there's this little memory trace in the back of their mind where they're like, wait, 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 wait. Didn't Jesus talk about leaving and going somewhere to prepare a place for us? I mean, he said the kingdom of God is here at hand, but he also talked about like something else that's out there. And so Jesus, this is what happens. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God and his life, death, and resurrection, but he also said, someday I'm going to come back for you, and I'm going to bring the kingdom back here. That teaches us that the kingdom of God, it is here, it is past, it is present, but it's also future-oriented. It will be fully consummated when Christ comes back the second time. Now, do you know what that's going to look like? 
This future consummation when Christ comes back, that's what the entire book of Revelation is all about. We're going to be preaching through it and studying it later this year. So I'm pretty stoked about it. But let me just give you a couple of highlights. When Christ died and was resurrected, he showed up to his disciples, right? He taught them, he showed them how he could be found in the Old Testament, he taught them about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus is, he ascends, he's glorified. He goes to the right hand of the Father and now he's reigning in heaven at the right hand of God. Where's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where Jesus is at and where the Father's at and where everyone submits willingly to his rule. The kingdom of God is in heaven, Right? But look what it says in Revelation eleven fifteen, When the kingdom gets consummated at the end of history, it says this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It's God and the Son, the Father and the Son. And he shall reign forever and ever. Now listen, when Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, it has this future-oriented concept in mind that someday Jesus is going to come back to this earth and this earth will once again become the kingdom of God. Now, Revelation 21 goes on and tells us that the end result for Christians, listen, is not that we go to heaven when we die. They, theologians call that an intermediary state. That's not the end of the story. Heaven's great, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the king comes back and the kingdom is on this earth again and we rule and we reign and we enjoy him forever. Now let's go to Revelation 21. Here is the climax of the story. Heaven comes down to this earth. It says, John, when he's describing, he says, I saw heaven come down. The, the new Jerusalem, he calls it, the heaven come down and earth. They meet and both are renewed. God is going to renew this earth to be his kingdom where, quote, the dwelling place of God is with man. That God will dwell with them. And look, they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He's the king. We are his loyal subjects. We are his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is a gracious and kind and compassionate king. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Now listen. When Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, there's a past, present, and future reality to it. It's literally a story and we're in the middle of it. You've got to understand the story. We've got to know what, where we came from, what went wrong, why is the world so jacked up? And we've got to know what God has already done to fix things. It gives us great confidence. Some people are like, well, how do I know Jesus is going to come back? He came the first time. He was promised to come the first time, and he came. We're looking back on the cross. He already, was, he already came. He was already crucified. He was already resurrected. We can trust that he's coming again. See, Jesus 
brought the kingdom of God 2,000 years ago, and he accomplished it, he sealed it, he solidified it on the cross, and he opened it up to us so now we can enter it by faith. And yet, his kingdom is not yet consummated on this earth. Colossians 1, 13 to 14 says it this way. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and look, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I know this is complicated. Right now, we are living in the tension between what God has done and what God will do when Christ comes back. Theologians call this the already, already, not yet tension that we live in. Now, many of us checked out, like, why does this matter? Here's where we come in. Our part to play in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming Jesus says this, we're to pray for Jesus to come back and set up his kingdom, right? Heaven, come down now. We want that day to happen, but here's something else. We're also called to live as his happy citizens in God's kingdom now. Hear that? This prayer is about joyfully submitting our wills to his. When we do that, when we come under his kingship and we willingly, lovingly, joyfully submit to being his subjects and living under his rule, we witness to the world that the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom of this world. Listen, there is a popular false gospel out there that says this, you can have Jesus as your savior. He can forgive your sins and you can go to heaven when you die without having Jesus as your king. When we're taught to pray your kingdom come, it first of all means right now, in my heart and life, let me joyfully live under your rule. Let me obey you. Let your kingdom principles shape my life, my family, and my business practices. When we pray, let your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, let me submit to your kingship. Let me submit my will to yours. Now, now ask yourself, if a person couldn't follow you around for a couple of days and figure out that you serve a different king, King Jesus, by the way you live your life, by your schedule and your priorities, then you don't understand the gospel of the kingdom. You might be believing a false gospel that's the Star Trek gospel that's going to beam you up someday to heaven and it's all about save, saving your soul. 
It's not about a kingdom and a king and a restoration of all of our normal life. For the Christian, the king has brought us into his kingdom. And now we live under his rule and reign. We serve him, not our careers. We serve him, not our hobbies. We serve him, not ourself. We serve him, not our king, not our kids, I'm sorry. We serve King Jesus, not king children. And I'll tell you, your children are miserable kings and queens. But they'll take it. They'll take it, for sure. So let me give you a few examples that by the grace of God, so here's the deal. The kingdom is coming, right? Jesus is going to do it. We can't usher it in. We can't make it happen. We can't bring it to this earth. He has the set day. He has the set time. He's going to come restore this earth. In the meanwhile, we're living here as little ambassadors of his kingdom, little outposts of his kingdom, right? And we're living in this tension of the already, Jesus already came and set up his kingdom, but he hasn't came back and brought it. So we live in this already not yet tension. What do we do? What does it look like? Can the kingdom break in? Absolutely. And this is what it looks like. When a busy dad with a high-pressure corporate job leaves work before his colleagues so he can be home to eat dinner with his family and read the Bible to them and pray with them before bed, the kingdom breaks in. When an anxious couple commits to giving up at least one night a week to gather with a strange thing called missional community. To generously bring food and to eat with others and to listen to people with problems. I ain't got time for that. Got my own problems to worry about. Where this couple slows down and makes time and puts the effort in to have deep and meaningful relationships that put God at the center the kingdom of God is breaking in. When highly capable, incompetent moms put their careers on hold so they can stay at home and shepherd their kids, the kingdom is breaking in. When young people forsake chasing another experience in another city and decide to settle down and put down roots in a church to know others and to be deeply known and to center their lives on the family of faith. The kingdom of God is breaking in. When people turn from their self-centeredness, when they repent of their sins, they say to Jesus, be my king. And they declare that through baptism like happened this morning. The kingdom of God is breaking in. The kingdom of darkness, light is shining. When a young couple says, I know what the world is doing. I know what everyone else is telling me to do. But we're going to honor God in this relationship. We're going to stay sexually pure until our wedding day. The kingdom of God breaks in. 
when meals get made for the sick, when meals get made for new moms, the kingdom of God is breaking in. When a bunch of people gather monthly for the sole purpose of blessing others in our city who are less fortunate than we are, when we're serving at 180 or at a school or some other nonprofit, the kingdom of God is breaking in. When parents teach their kids that gathering with their church family and worshiping God on Sunday morning is more important than sports or music lessons or 5Ks or running or whatever. There's a plethora of things to do on Sunday morning. The kingdom of God is breaking in. What do I mean by breaking? Is it the kingdom of here? Is, Jesus said it's here, but it's still coming. That's what I mean. It's breaking in. I don't know. It's like when you open the door to your house and your wife's been cooking something or somebody's been cooking something that smells delicious and you get a whiff of it, right? Is it here? Well, it's kind of here. That's not the dish, but I'm smelling it. It's kind of like that. It's like this, I know something good's here. I know something's happened. It's what happens when we see the kingdom of God break in. We need to get good at recognizing it and good at saying, thank you, King Jesus, for giving us this glimpse, for giving us this whiff of your kingdom. It helps us and encourages us, and it longs for the supper of the lamb. It long, we long for life in your kingdom. Can I ask you this morning, have you submitted yourself to the king? Or are you still fighting to be the king or queen of your life. Listen, the majority of our anxiety revolves around this question. If you're anxious and you go to God and you're trying to make him do your will and tell him to bring your kingdom, it's actually going to increase your own anxiety Our anxiety is relieved and healed when we can honestly come to him and say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you might push back against this. You might bristle at the thought of living under a king and submitting to his rule. But if you see Jesus, If you see how gracious of a king he is, you will trust him. See, Jesus is the king who wins our loyalty not by domineering us, not by breaking our will, not by conquering us, but by being conquered for us, by giving up everything for us. Kings, what do they do? They make all their subjects work and pay tribute and serve their purposes. What did Jesus do? He came and he lived his life and he died our death and he did everything for us. It's a kingdom of grace. If he's done that, it's not going to let you down now. You can trust him. So this prayer is a revolutionary prayer. You know what it means, only the bold pray it. 
Because basically I'm saying, God, ruin my plans for your glory. Give me what you want for me. Bring your kingdom in my life. Bring your priorities in my life. Shape me. Change me. I'm a child who doesn't know the way that he should go. I need you to bend my will towards your will so I can willingly, joyfully, excited say, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray. Father, only your spirit and your word can do this in us, can transfer us into the kingdom of your son, can create, you know, strong-willed Americans to submit our wills to yours. We ask that you would do it now for your own glory and for our good, that you would bring the kingdom now Bring it to bear. Let us see windows of the kingdom. Let us see the kingdom break in in our daily life and would we be encouraged by it. For those of us who have not bowed a knee to Jesus Christ, the king of all kings, I pray they would do it now. For those of us who say we are Christians, we have bowed the knee, would we search our heart? Would we confess our sins, change our ways, and come and take the supper that you gave us, your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, that this is what it cost you to get us back into your kingdom. We long for the day that your kingdom is consummated on this earth. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took it and you broke the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and said, this is my blood that's been shed for you. Pray that we would eat it and we would drink it and we would worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, if you'd come serve with me this morning.